Testament text this morning, Psalm chapter 119, longest psalm in the Bible, the longest chapter in the whole Bible, and we'll be reading eight verses from it, one stanza, we'll be reading verses 105 to 112, Psalm 119, beginning at verse 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I have sworn an oath and confirmed it to keep your righteous rules. I am severely afflicted. Give me life, O Lord, according to your word. Accept my free will offerings of praise, O Lord, and teach me your rules. I hold my life in my hand continually, but I do not forget your law. The wicked have laid a snare for me, but I do not stray from your precepts. Your testimonies are my heritage forever. They are the joy of my heart. I incline my heart to perform your statutes forever to the end. For the psalmist who wrote this psalm, the word of God, things he's spoken, his testimonies, his rules, his laws are impressed upon the psalmist. They're his driving influence. They, are, they drive his worship of God, how he interacts with people, how he holds on to what he knows is correct in spite of the fact that he has enemies that would trip him up and take him out of God's will. So now we turn to the man who really truly lived out such a life, who, for whom God's law was everything, beginning and end, even though that led him to death on the cross. Today, as we read our main passage, which comes to us from Matthew 14, we'll read the very beginning of Jesus public ministry. As up to this point in our previous sermons, we've seen Jesus be baptized, inaugurated into his ministry. We've seen him being tempted by the devil. But now we get to this portion of scripture where Jesus begins to publicly minister, begins to actively speak to people. And from now on, he becomes a very active character in the gospel. So in light of that, let's turn to Matthew chapter 4. We'll be reading verses 12 through 22 this morning. Matthew 4, beginning at verse 12. Now when he, that is Jesus, heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. For those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, for I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and they followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for this passage of scripture. We thank you for how you speak to it, speak through it to us. 
We pray, Father, now that you would bless our hearts, bless this sermon, and this word of scripture to our hearts. Let them all redound to your glory, increase our faith in you. Father, do a mighty work in us through, through the word that is preached today. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ, we pray for your help and for your blessing on this time. Amen. When I was a kid, I had some funny ways of keeping myself entertained, as children do. The one I was thinking of specifically today, I liked to play with flashlights when I was a young kid. In one of the houses that we lived in when I was about seven years old to 10 years old, we had a bathroom that was kind of in the middle of the house. There weren't any windows to the outside of the bathroom. So what I would do is go into the bathroom with a flashlight, close the door, turn off the lights, and make it just as pitch black as I could. And then I turn on the flashlight and just watch how it illuminated anything that I pointed it to inside of the bathroom. And I really liked pointing the light at the mirror and watching it just randomly reflect to another part of the bathroom. For a little boy, this was all just great fun. And I actually asked my mother about it, if she remembered me doing that. And she said, yes, she remembered it. And it was also perfectly okay with her because I was happy and entertained and I wasn't actually like getting myself into trouble. Everyone won with that one. But reflecting on those adventures with a flashlight, now as an adult, made me notice something. That the physical darkness of the bathroom could be completely destroyed by the flashlight. Shining the flashlight on any patch of the floor or the wall, and immediately that wall becomes brighter. The object becomes more clear. The darkness retreated as soon as the light touched it. Now, granted, the flashlight didn't illuminate the entire bathroom all at once. It wasn't anywhere near powerful enough for that. It didn't even do a particularly good job of illuminating that one patch because it just wasn't a very strong light. There are limits to what it could do. But anywhere it showed, things did get bright. And think about the overhead light in a given bathroom. Light wasn't destroyed because darkness suddenly swooped in and destroyed the light. It was simply dark because the light wasn't on. As soon as I wanted to, I could turn on the overhead light and poof, the entire room is illuminated right then and there. Darkness would be gone. Darkness and light were not equals. As soon as light came, darkness would be forced to retreat. In our passage today, we read Matthew's account of the start of Jesus' public ministry. And when Jesus came, it was like the shining of a light in a dark room. But this wasn't the relatively weak beam of a flashlight. This was more like a spotlight of illumination. More than that, it was like a sun rising after a very long, moonless night and bringing light to a place where there had only been darkness before. This passage describes the very first rays of light that Jesus brought, what they were, and how he called people to leave behind the darkness that they had lived in. Our theme to summarize this, is that the dawn of Christ's ministry brought rescue to the people who lived in the shadow of death. The dawn of Christ's ministry brought rescue to people who lived in the shadow of death. We will talk about three features of that early ministry of Jesus. First, we will talk about the location of his ministry. Second, the light of his ministry. And then thirdly, 
the laborers of his ministry. So first, what was the location of his ministry? Matthew 4, verse 12 through 13 says, Now when he had heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. Now last week we read about Jesus being tempted in the wilderness by Satan. This takes place sometime after it. It seems that after that temptation in the wilderness, Jesus stayed in the region of Judea, in southern Israel, for a time. We don't exactly know how long he was there. But at some point, John the Baptizer, who was Jesus' cousin and his prophetic forerunner, his announcer, John was arrested and put into prison. Now we'll talk a lot more about John's arrest, the circumstances and the results of it, later on in another sermon. Matthew will talk about that in detail, and we will get there when we get there. But for now, what we need to keep in mind is that that's it for John, basically, as a public speaker. His time as a free man is basically up, and he never gets out of prison with his life. But what, all, what did all this mean for Jesus? Well, according to Matthew, it meant that Jesus' time for public ministry in Galilee had come. It wasn't that Jesus and John had been in competition with each other. As we'll see in a few minutes, their individual preaching sounded very, very similar to each other, and they had the same end in mind. So it's not that they were in competition and Jesus finally didn't have to compete with them. It's more that an important point in Jesus' ministry, in God's plan, had been reached, and now something new was starting to happen. Think of it like this. When you're driving on the highway and you need to make an exit at a certain point, once that point comes, you need to jump ship. You need to get off of whatever road you're going on, take the exit, and get onto the new road to get to wherever you need to go. That, that particular exit, that particular junction, is important. You miss it, you're not getting where you need to go. So that's what happened with Jesus. A time has come, and something new needs to begin now. So Jesus left Judea in the south, and instead went north to the region of Galilee where he had lived in Nazareth. Now he stayed in his hometown of Nazareth for a time. We don't know how long he was there, but after leaving Nazareth, he went to Capernaum. Now, Nazareth we talked about before was rural, small, and pretty much backwater. And completely, Capernaum was not like Nazareth. Capernaum was a good-sized city near the Sea of Galilee. It was well-connected to other towns and cities in Galilee, in other places because there were a large number of trade routes nearby. And Capernaum for Jesus would be his sort of home base for his Galilean ministry. Whenever he went out to the wider region of Galilee or anywhere else, sooner or later, he would make his way back to Capernaum. Now, perhaps we've never given it any thought that Jesus was not just in Capernaum particularly, but in Galilee in particular. I mean, to be honest, until you actually like start studying these things, until I started studying these things, Galilee is just a name. It's just a place that I know is important to Jesus, but I don't understand what that means relative to anything else. It's just a place on a map, an ancient area that I'm never going to visit, right? That might be so for us, it might seem like that. But to Jesus' contemporaries, to hear that Messiah had come, but he was in Galilee, doing the vast majority of his public ministry among the Galileans, that would have sounded very, very strange. 
It would have sounded even more strange to hear that the Messiah was raised in a Galilean village of all places. In fact, some of the rulers of Israel just flat out said, this Jesus of Nazareth cannot be the Messiah. He's from Galilee and nobody important comes from Galilee. No prophet ever comes from Galilee. John 7 verse 52, if you remember the rulers talking about Jesus, they said, search and see. No prophet arises from Galilee. Now, is that just a bunch of stuffy old men sitting in a room and judging a man before they've given him a fair hearing and listen to what he's actually saying? Well, yes, actually it is. That's exactly what it is. They weren't right in saying that about Jesus, but from their perspective, they would have said they had very good reason to be suspicious of anybody who came from Galilee. Now, we said that Galilee was in the northern part of Israel. Specifically, it was in the territory that belonged to the Israelite tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali, in the far north of what we call Israel. And Galilee as a region, think of Galilee as sort of like the northern United States as compared to the southern United States. Yes, they're both the US, but they're also very different and they produce different kinds of people in a lot of ways. So Galilee is very different from Judea. Judea as a region is very mountainous. And as far as territory goes, it's not inviting. It's hard to get around from place to place, canyons and mountains and hills sort of block areas. It's not easy to travel. Because of that, Judea in the south is relatively isolated. But Galilee, on the other hand, in the north, is a lot more inviting. It's comparatively flat. The area is very fertile compared with Judea. And there's a number of Gentile towns and nations relatively close by. So that means that trade is much easier. Galileans are on the whole more connected. They're more familiar with Gentiles than people in the South are going to be. Now that's great as far as trade goes. That's good as far as economics go. But exposure to those Gentile nations did not turn the Galileans into just like the best evangelists within Israel. It didn't make them into a hub of evangelical activity. The opposite actually pretty much happened. Almost as soon as Israel came to the promised land and began occupying the land, the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali and really all of the northern tribes had a lot of trouble with the local Canaanites. Zebulun and Naphtali were early adopters of Baal worship and other forms of idolatry. In other words, they corrupted their pure worship of God very quickly and very strongly from an early time. And that set a pattern for the rest of Northern Israel's history. Even by Jesus' own time, the Galilee's exposure to the Gentiles meant exposure to their pagan habits, and that corrupted their commitment to the Lord. The downside to this, the serious downside to this was just greater occasion for spiritual laziness and exposure to corrupting sinful ideas. We criticize the Pharisees as Christians. We criticize the Pharisees because they were legalists, because they were so zealous for the law that they didn't know the meaning of mercy. And we, and we criticize them for that rightly. And we'll get to that a lot in the coming days as Jesus criticizes them. The Pharisees were wrong to say what they did about the Galileans to practice law, law the way that they did. But we must understand what they were reacting against because the Pharisees were reacting. You see, the Galileans had the opposite problem from the Pharisees, and the Pharisees cared way too much about making rules and being overly spiritual. The average Galilean didn't care at all about being spiritual. 
They weren't concerned with being righteous. The Pharisees were basically saying, somebody has got to live out what it means to be a follower of Adonai. And apparently these people aren't doing it, so it's got to be us. Were they wrong? Yes. But that doesn't mean that the Galileans were correct. We sometimes think about spiritual darkness, I think, as if it's only something that the worst sort of human being can embody. Eves, those who exploit the vulnerable, murderers, drug abusers, we talk about that as if it is spiritual darkness. Or at least that may be the first thing that pops into our minds. And those things are evil, they are sinful, yes. But we forget about other kinds of sin too that seem more acceptable. Things like pride or envy, slothfulness, spiritual slothfulness or lustfulness. Why are these things wrong? Why do we think that they're wrong? Or why do we sort of wink and say it might not be so bad? It's not because we all sat down around the campfire, all the nations of the world sat down and said, we like these things, but we don't like this. No, at their heart, these things are wrong because they are a violation of God's holy And they're a violation of his will for us as his creatures. And as human beings made in the image of God, we know these things instinctively on some level. But because of our sinful natures, we just as instinctively deny the lawmaker and deny what he has commanded. We look at the things that God has said, that's wrong or that's right, and then we twist it. We know that this is wrong, we know that this is right, but then we like to just twist it. This isn't so bad, or this just shouldn't be done, even though we know that it's the right thing to be done. And as Romans 1 verse 20 reminds us, for his, God's, invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. It's pretty easy to point at someone else and give a detailed description of their sin. I'm sure the average Galilean could have told you about the stuck-up Pharisees who came north to bring a little bit of religious enlightenment to we poor schlubs. But so often, human beings and we are like children who complain that it's unfair when God convicts us of sin. What I did wasn't so bad after all. And look at that guy. Look at what Timmy is up to. What he's doing is worse. But when Jesus confronts us with our sin, he acts like a good parent who says, I will deal with Timmy. I will deal with what he did wrong. But right now, I am dealing with you. And you need to think about what you did and why that makes me unhappy. And he does that to all of us. All people start in a place of spiritual darkness, hostility to God. Now, in some people, that's simply more obvious. But there's no exception to the rule of Romans 3.23, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. On our best day, our default knee-jerk reaction to God is a slothful, I couldn't care less. And that is as much a form of spiritual darkness as the more explicitly self-destructive or others destructive forms of sin. We were born in spiritual darkness, and without God's help, we would be lost in that same darkness forever. That is my starting point as well as yours. And to get out of it, to get away from it, we need help. We need external help that takes us by the hand and leads us out of the dark. 
And that's what Jesus gives to us, as we see in our second point, life of Jesus' ministry. Now, from a planning strategic point of view, there are a number of advantages to Jesus being in Galilee and basing his public ministry in Capernaum. As we said, Capernaum was well connected to a number of other towns throughout Israel, so travel would be relatively easy. The people of Galilee would be relatively used to new ideas, more so than the average Judean. So theoretically, at least, we'll get there, they'd be more receptive to Jesus' teaching. The town of Capernaum, in particular, was well-suited to be a home base for a traveling rabbi like Jesus. But we have said that there were also pitfalls and risks. We said that Galilee wasn't a place of great spiritual consciousness at all. Neither did its people have the political connections or religious education or just normal education that people in Judea would have greater access to. And besides, what's the most important city in Israelite history? What's the place that we always talk about in the Old Testament? What's the city of David? Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the important city. That's the historic seat of political power. That's where the temple is. Traditionally, Jerusalem is the most important place in Israel, and that is in Judea, not in Galilee. In short, no one was expecting the Christ to use Galilee to establish himself in Israel. There was no apparent reason to do so. And yet, here again, the foolishness of God puts the wisdom of mankind to shame. Verses 14 through 16 in our passage, Jesus went to Galilee and ministered, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. For those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light. As at other times, the prophet Isaiah foretold what God would do in the future. Matthew saw how that foretelling, how that prophecy became a reality. Israel had a major problem with that. Northern Israel in particular had an early problem with this, and they seemed pretty much eager to throw themselves at any idol they came across. By the time Isaiah was active as a prophet, God had already judged the northern tribes of Israel by means of invasion and exile at the hand of the Assyrian army. Now, the nation of Assyria was famous in its day. It was brutal to the people that it conquered. Those whom it didn't kill would take the people and transport them to some foreign land that they had never been to and that they would never leave, and it would take outsiders and plant them in the territory that they conquered. Just shift people around so that they don't know where they are, they have no loyalty to the people around them. Makes for good subjects when they can't organize. Because the territories of Zebulun and Naphtali were so far to the north of Israel, and Assyria invaded from the north coming south. Zebulun and Naphtali were amongst the earliest hit by the, earth, by the Israelite tribes, and they got crushed because of their idolatry. 
east. And when Assyria came, the dark land only grew even darker because of the paganism that was introduced by Assyria and other Gentiles. Now with that as the background, Isaiah foresaw that, through, that though the denizens of Zebulun and Naphtali dwelt in darkness, a time was coming when light would dawn and it would free them from the power of death. A great reversal was coming. Darkness was the way of the land of Zebulun and Naphtali for a while, but light was coming that would drive out the darkness. Those who were dwelling under the power and shadow of death would see light and life coming like dawn, coming to rescue them, coming to free them. The power of sin and evil that ruled over Galilee, over both Jews and Gentiles, kept them under the power of death. Darkness that was too deep for man or woman to pierce and lead themselves out of. But Isaiah saw that a light would be sent by God to Zebulun and Naphtali, and it would free the people who were trapped in the kingdom of death. By quoting that prophecy, Matthew is telling us that Jesus is that light who came to illuminate the shadows. He came to Galilee to chase away the darkness of sin with his own light and bring life both to the Jews and to their Gentile neighbors. And what did the light of God do when he came to Galilee? Verse 17, from that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. About a month ago, when we were talking about John the baptizer's ministry, John came preaching repentance and calling for the transformation of heart in the people of Israel. Jesus called for the same thing as John. This is why I said they were not in competition with each other. They wanted the same thing from the people they ministered to. The people needed to realize that they were citizens of the dark and they had done the deeds of darkness and they needed to repent of those ways that they needed to make a definitive break with them and cling to God for mercy. And they needed to do so urgently because the kingdom of God was drawn near. It was even nearer than when John had preached. A decision needed to be made by the people of Galilee because the son of God had come to them. Physical light is an illuminator. Shine a light like you do in the bathroom and you see what's hidden in dark corners. Shine the right kind of light, such as a black light or infrared light, and you might see things that you can't see with the naked eye or normal light. And something similar happens in the spiritual realm too. Our souls, as we said, are oriented to the darkness by default. We like the dark. We were at home in the dark. We did the deeds of spiritual darkness. We lived according to spiritual darkness because that's what we knew. That's what was comfortable. That's just how it's done, we would say. And then light came to you and it showed you that you had been wrong. That what you had done and what you were doing was wrong, even if it felt comfortable. That your sins had stained you and you had stained yourself. And then when Jesus came to you, you saw those deeds for what they were. But then he also promised you deliverance from the kingdom of sin and death and darkness. And he brought you escape from the shadow of death. His own death rescued you from your sin. And he removed you from the clutches of your own evil. As Jesus says about himself in John 8 verse 12, 
I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And now, instead of the darkness, you have light, because you have become united to the light of the world. But we must remember that Jesus didn't simply come to give light. We must remember that he is the light that gives us spiritual clarity, that he is the embodiment of the righteousness and obedience of God, and he calls to those who are outside, who are in the darkness, he calls them to leave it behind and to embrace him as their light. He calls for repentance of heart and deeds which correspond with spiritual light. And as believers who have repented of their sin, let, that, let Psalm 119, excuse me, let Psalm 119 verse 105 be always on our hearts. That your word, God's word, is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. We need the Lord's spiritual illumination in our hearts so that we can do the things that are pleasing to him. There's any number of voices in the culture around us that say, trust this or that for enlightenment. They tell us, rely on our culture, rely on our politics, rely on your own experience to tell us what is right or wrong, what is good and evil. And Jesus says, no, culture can be wrong. Politics can be wrong. Even our own experiences, we don't necessarily, we often don't interpret correctly. We need Jesus. We need scripture to help us make sense of the life around us, to know what is good and what is evil and what is pleasing to God. We need his continual help so that we can understand these things and do what is correct. And he will give that help to you and to me, to all who will cry out to him. So as Jesus dispels the darkness from our hearts, let us live not as people of darkness, but as people of light, turning away from our old, destructive ways of sin and turning towards the ways of God in all areas of our life. Having seen the great light that Jesus cast, how he exposed and rebuked darkness in a territory known for its sin, we might be surprised at the sort of people that Jesus recruited. When he began to look for helpers, he called for Galileans, unusual ones at that. But once again, God used unconventional means to accomplish something amazing. And we will see how this is in our final point, the laborers of Jesus' ministry. Not long after he began ministering and preaching in Galilee, Jesus began to recruit men from among the Galileans to be disciples. Now, already, this is unusual. In those days, if a Jew wanted to be a student of a rabbi, say I decided that I wanted to learn from a given rabbi, let's call him Rabbi Smith. If I wanted to learn from him, I would go out to him and I would ask him to let me apprentice with him. Then I would follow him, I would live with him, I would just do life for him, learn how to live life with him. Now, I as the student would normally go out and choose my master. But Jesus didn't do that. As a teacher, he bought trends. He decided who would be his disciples, not the other way around. So who did he choose? Verses 18 through 22. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. He said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. 
Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father, and they followed him. Now these four men, Simon, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, the sons of Zebedee, are famous throughout church history. They're known as Jesus' first apostles, and each of them has their own special contributions to the church. Simon Peter is especially well known to us for many reasons, a lot of them not good, if we're being honest. But when Jesus came to them, these four men were basically nobodies. We would basically call them blue-collar men who just basically live almost hand-to-mouth, regular laborers who are just breaking their backs to catch fish and sell them to market to survive another day. None of them were educated above the most basic curriculum that Jewish boys received. A little bit of reading, a little bit of writing, a little bit of math to be able to count, enough reading to understand the basics of Torah, and that's about it. That's all they got. None of these men, and probably none of Jesus' disciples, were educated above that basic curriculum. None of them, for sure, were trained scholars. James and John maybe were a bit better off than Peter and Andrew. Zebedee, it seems, was wealthy enough to have laborers working for him. You don't just do that unless you're wealthy enough to afford that. And at the end of his ministry, when Jesus was being interrogated, Peter and John were nearby because John was known to the high priest. His family had enough clout to get him in the door. So it seems that James and John were kind of well off, but none of these men were particularly impressive. And none of them would have been the first pick under normal circumstances for a religious man with a, me with a message to preach. These are just guys, just Galileans fishing in the day, trying to earn a couple of extra coins, or getting their nets ready so that they can go fishing in the evening. But when Jesus came, everything changed for these men. He saw Simon, Peter, and Andrew, and he called them to follow him. They were just as lost, perhaps, in their spiritual darkness as their, as their neighbors, no different from any other Galilean. But Jesus came to them, and he called them out of the shadows into the light of spiritual day. And not only that, he called them to take up a new trade. He would make them into fishers of men. No more would they cast nets to catch fish. Jesus wanted them to join him in catching men, in catching people who were trapped in the darkness of sin and pull them out to safety. If Jesus was the light, then he was calling Peter and Andrew to be little lights, and James and John as well, calling them to be small lights who led people to the big light, to the main light. These men whom Jesus rescued from the darkness would help him to rescue even more people, call them to repentance. And when they were called, none of these men hesitated. Verse 19 says that Peter and Andrew abandoned their nets immediately, right then and there, and they began to follow Jesus. When Jesus called James and John, they too left everything, their nets, their boats, even their father. These four men turned away from the only life they had known. With its familiarity, with its comforts, they gave up quite a lot in order to follow Jesus. In Matthew 19, verse 27, Peter will suggest that they and the rest of the 12 had to give up quite a lot in order to follow Jesus Christ. 
Even their family, their parents, critical things for first century Jews had to take a second place in order to serve Jesus. Nonetheless, when he called them, they showed no hesitation. They would learn from him and they would serve him and they would minister to others in his name because that's what the master had called them to. Did they know what they were getting themselves into? No, they did not. Did they know who Jesus really was? Not at this point. Did they know how much they would suffer for the sake of Jesus Christ? Did they know that James would have his head cut off? Did Peter and Andrew know that they would both be crucified? Peter in Rome, Andrew as far north as Scotland. Did John know that he would have to live and watch these three men and the rest of the apostles die and live to be an old man exiled for his faith? Did they know what they were going to have to give up for the sake of Jesus Christ? They did not. But when Jesus called them, on some level, they understood that he was worth the sacrifice, any service he called them to, whatever he called them to. Jesus called these men and eight others like them to be the foundation of the church that Jesus would build on earth. If the church is a city set on a hill, alike to both the Jews and the Gentiles, and these men, these four and the rest of the 12, are the foundation, the first stones that were laid that would have everything else built on top of them, with Jesus himself being the cornerstone, the capstone that's the most important part of the foundation. Beginning with these four men, Jesus laid the groundwork for believers to be, as Matthew 5 verse 14 says, us to be the light of the world. And every faithful church, regardless of its location on earth or its point in history, stands on the tradition that began with those four men. The tradition that began with them and was passed down to us. In a few minutes, we'll celebrate the communion. And as always, I'll read from 1 Corinthians 11 verses 23 through 26. And what's the first thing that we always read? Paul says in verse 23, I received from you what I also do. I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. Paul was saying that as an apostle, he is just following the tradition of the Lord's Supper that was given to him by the Lord. It wasn't invented by him, Paul, or by any of the other apostles. It was given to all of them by Jesus Christ and passed down to other believers. And so it is with every faithful church. What we receive from the Lord by a scriptures, we pass on to others. As a church, New Life Burbank, we must stand on that same foundation that has been given to us by God through his servants. We must preach and live out that same gospel that the first disciples believed in. They received and they passed on through almost 2,000 years of history to us. That we will pass on to our children and grandchildren after us. As one who is called to serve God and to serve you as your pastor, I would ask for your continual prayers in this, that God would guide me in my ministry. That there's a special burden that comes with being an elder, with being a pastor, that the word of God must be guarded faithfully for my ministry. And I would ask for your prayers that God would keep me faithful. I can't tell you how much I need that. In our session two, we need that same prayer. As Alan and I, as elders, we seek to shepherd new life that we ourselves would take the light that was given to us in scripture as we shepherd you, that we would administer it with faithfulness and godliness.
in our individual lives, let us also remember the light that Jesus has entrusted to you and to me. As we grow more united to Jesus Christ, we must remember that we are called to be a light in the darkness to other people, people who still live in the shadow of death and are bound for hell. God does not save them. That may well mean direct evangelism, telling somebody else about Jesus Christ, and that can be frightening. But our strength and our courage, it doesn't come from ourselves. Neither, neither do the, the results depend upon simply our presentation of the gospel. It depends upon the Lord always. The strength to do what is right comes from the Lord. Peace. So let your light shine forward in the darkness because it is given to you by the true light of the world. And it is that light which is powerful enough to chase away even the deepest of shadows from the hearts of mankind. Amen. Shall we pray? Lord God, we thank you for the scripture. We thank you for sending your light, your son, Jesus Christ, into the world to save us from the darkness, to redeem us out of sin, to bring us into his kingdom. So we ask that you would continue to make us fit to be with you, that you more and more you would sanctify us, that the light that you give to us grow stronger because of Jesus Christ. We ask, Father, that you would allow us to illuminate the darkness in the lives of other people. Help them to see us, Lord, to see the way that we live, we talk, we think. Through us, Father, we ask that you would show them your Son, Jesus Christ, and bring others out of the darkness, too. In Jesus' name, we pray for your help, and thank you for the scripture. Yeah.